Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 19. Today I have the unique honor and privilege of interviewing the first black professional snowboarder, Russell Winfield. He grew up in upstate New York and had a passion for hockey, a vision to go big on skates. But after learning to ride or board, he hung up his skates and ultimately became the first black professional snowboarder. Russell saw a snowboard for the first time in Greenwich, Connecticut around 1984. Greenwich is not too far from Rye. He used to go sledding at a country club in Rye. After he found a snowboard in a skate shop, he started to bring his board to the country club. At that time, boards were not allowed in the ski resorts. After that third day of boarding, he could rip down and hit jumps. There were a few people that had boards. Russell made friends with them, and it was super fun for him. There were many cliffs and other little features all over the place. His favorite was the sand trap that had an elevated tee box next to it. You could drop in off the tee box and do a backside air flip into the sand trap. It was epic. Being from the East Coast, he didn't have surfing. He did a little bit of skating, but he didn't have any of the West Coast stuff that he craved. There was something inside of him that needed it, so he combined the surfing with skateboarding, which he also loved, and that love developed an admiration and a passion for snowboarding. It just felt right to Russell. Whereas hockey, which he had been playing since he was three years old, and was pretty accomplished at it. He didn't get that feeling. There was something about riding that he couldn't shake off. It was like surfing for East Coast kids. The beauty of snowboarding for Russell was the culture. At first, before he moved, he would make his parents drive three hours to Stranton from Rye. Initially, Russell just rode by himself. He used to see Trisha and Doug Burns ripping around. They were mainstays at Stranton. Siblings. They embraced snowboarding at an early age and the mountain witnessed the duo rise from youthful boarders to ranked competitors. Russell one day went and started talking to them. He ended up taking some laps with them and they became good friends. After moving to Stranton full time, he taught skiing for three to four days and then he would board the rest. He used the money he made teaching skiing to pay for boards and boarding. Stratton was also the hometown of Burton. It is widely upset that Jack Burton Carpenter, founder of Burton Snowboards, and Tom Sims, founder of Sims Snowboards, invented modern snowboarding by introducing bindings and steel edges to snowboards. Prior to moving to Stratton, he went with some friends and decided he wanted to get his board certification. The problem was he had only ridden in powder with fins, 
he took his burning leaf, which is meant for powder, up there, and he couldn't even turn. So at first, he didn't get his certification. After he failed his first attempt, he told Russell he should take his fins off. He did, and he was able to get his certification. Once he got his certification, he connected with Stratton Locals and joined a local team. Once he got his certification, he connected with a local team called Allegro. They were the Stratton snowboard team before the mountain would allow snowboarders. He eventually did well in a local Green Mountain series, which led to different shop sponsors like Sunset Bay. He sent pictures into Minstrel, which made boards, and they started sponsoring him. He ended up making it to the Nationals the first year he competed out in Southern California. He met people from across the country like it was summer camp. It was super fun for him. As an amateur, he had to compete in order to measure himself against others. He had to compete in all disciplines, giant solemn and half pipe. Russell told his coach that once he turned pro, he would never race again. He thought once he became pro, he would only do the half pipe. He quickly turned to filming more than competing. He took his first video part, Mac Dog's Pocahontas. He did a lot of tricks that had never been filmed before. He was trying to be as innovative as possible. He also had another movie, Toy Soldiers, when he was with Ride, which was also good for him. After he left Ride, Russell took a hiatus from snowboarding. He witnessed another black professional snowboarder sustain a significant spinal cord injury. And he also felt the culture of the sport had changed so he lost his drive. At that time, he spent a significant amount of time partying. He then went and started looking for a job outside of snowboarding. He had a solid education to fall back on. He now has an agency where he designs and builds websites along with working with a few brands in the snowboarding industry. He also does some work in the golf mortgage industry as well as the car industry. He did return to boarding for fun when his oldest daughter became interested in it. That made him pick up his board again. Please join me in welcoming Russell Winfield. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in Westchester County in New York in a small town called Rye, New York. Okay. So you played hockey as a child. How did you get interested in hockey? It's not a typical sport for us. Well, let me back up to before I was born. Okay. My mama was raised in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. I lived there, actually. And she didn't necessarily want that life for her child. Okay. She and my father moved to New York. She was just, she knew they were having a kid. Moved to New York, had me in, funny enough, the original hometown of the Bush family. That's what I grew up amongst. Okay. In New York, in those towns, it's not basketball, it's ice hockey. Uh, we, okay. My hometown was the, had the rink the New York Rangers practiced in. There was like three rinks in mm-hmm. the town. 
And that's kind of what it was. Hockey, baseball, football. And I had a basketball program, but, you know, there was like maybe four black kids in the whole from first grade to eighth. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So it wasn't very diverse. No. So how did you like playing hockey? It was fun. I like competition. I like to try to be the best at anything that I do. But as uh, I did really well at it, it just got to a point for me where I started growing in different directions than the sport Mm -hmm. or than the sport was going. I like to tell people I'm definitely an athlete, but I'm not much of a jock. Okay. What's the difference between a jock and an athlete, would you say? A jock's like, you know, parties with a shirt off. Okay. (laughs) I'm more creative about, you know, I like, drew me to snowboarding. I was the kid who liked to skateboard, too. Okay. And who liked, I remember the first time I saw a snowboard, I was just like, wow. Because being in New York and Southern Connecticut, I guess you could call it as well, there's no surfing. And you'd see all this stuff on TV. Back in the 70s and the early 80s, it'd be like TV. There was no interweb, none of that. Yeah. So I'd see yeah, all this stuff. Media. You know, the California lifestyle, and I was like, that's what it is. Like, that's what it's about. It's just me. I'm out there with the board. I'm doing my thing. You know, the kids, they were rebellious but artistic. And some smug sort of underhand way, very intelligent, I saw them as. It just drew me in. And I saw a snowboard, and I saw that I could meld skateboarding and surfing. Okay. And it was tiny. And I was like, this is going to be the next big thing. And I'm going to be part of it. So were you in Connecticut then? Was that? Uh, well, it's the same. So okay. Ryan, New York, and Greenwich, Connecticut neighbors. are neighbors between the working community town, which is Porchester. Okay. Which is very historically correct. Like you'll have, if you look at the map of a lot of cities, in between the rich neighborhoods is where the service area people live. Okay. So between Ryan Greenwich, there's Porchester. Okay. Now Porchester's rich too. That's just because that's what everything is. But back in the day, it was a bit hood. You saw your first snowboard. What made you go from hockey to snowboard? Well, I went to school. I was on a hockey scholarship in fifth grade. Okay, really? Wow. You were good. Yeah. If you want to start, yeah I couldn't yeah. play until I was in seventh grade. Okay. But they locked me in in fifth grade. Okay. Wow. I wouldn't go anywhere else. And that was in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is crazy, right. a crazy spot. It's beautiful and thing, but it's like crazy money there. Okay. So I'd go skiing with, you know, all my friends' parents had houses at Stratton up in Vermont. Mm-hmm. So I'd go skiing up there with them, and I picked that up pretty quickly and got good at it. But And I had been snowboarding, but they only allowed snowboarding, like you had to go to sledding hills. Okay. Back then. Okay. So I figured out snowboarding pretty quickly in Rye on a golf course when it would snow. You know, there was like five or six of us who would go. And then once uh, Stratton opened up to snowboard or had a certification for snowboarding, I went and got my certification and it was on. Okay. And I was still playing hockey for a little bit. How long did it take to go from, I guess, the mountains being open to snowboarders? What year was that, if you remember? It was... I think 
five. I could be wrong. It was, but to me, it was like, and they all were. A lot of them, in order to go, you had to get a certification, like at Stratton. But some just weren't at all. And there's a couple that still aren't nationwide. Yeah. Deer Valley in Utah, I know, is one of them. Deer Valley, Alta, Mm -hmm. I think Mad Skiers, Mad River Glen or something like that. And believe it's in Vermont. There's a few. So how did you go about getting your certification? What's the process? They take you up the hill on, like, the bunny slope. And then you have to ride down in front of the instructors, snowboard instructors. And if you are in control, they'll give it to you. The first time I went, I had never ridden on hardback. I'd only ridden on powder snow at the golf course. What's the hardback? Hardback is like... Oh, hardback snow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... My board, back then, it came with three little fins, like one on each side and one little, little one in the middle. And, so and that I was for powder. That was yeah, for powder. exactly. Okay. And I didn't know any different, so I got up there, and they were looking at me the whole time. They knew, and I couldn't make a turn. It was like okay. I was a beginner again. I got okay. to the bottom, and I was all frustrated, and they were like, well, you failed, but what you should do is take those skegs off your board and then come back. It's like... I'm an effort. Why didn't you tell me you seen me the whole time? Mm-hmm. So I took them off and bang, it was done. And that's, you know, the rest is history, really. So you went back and you got certified. And what happened after that? After I got certified, I just got better. And I met those, some of the locals. Back then, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of snowboarders on the hill. So if you'd see somebody coming down that could make turns and do jumps, mm-hmm. you guys would, you know, it's like seeing a black person in the street. Mm-hmm. Give them this. You know yeah, the nod. The nod. The nod. Yeah, I see you. And it was like that. So it was real familiar to me. Like it was just, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. other thing was like, wow, these people don't just hate me or dislike me for being on the mountain. They're just like all of us. And these people are white. Mm-hmm. They're just like them because they're on a snowboard. They might, me being black is secondary. And that's kind of a weird thing. Secondary to you being a snowboarder? Yeah, at first, really? on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, first it was all these snowboarders, and then it was like, oh, and that one's even black. Mm-hmm. You know? So, in some weird, twisted way, that made me feel better, because at least I wasn't completely alone. I had another group of, of you know, You had your, your snowboarders. Yeah. So eventually you moved to Vermont, is that correct? Yep. I uh, went to boarding school to play hockey in Massachusetts, and it was a lot. I made a conscious effort. I was like, I'm going to do well in school. So I wasn't the best student. I just didn't, it was boring to me. I just didn't really care. I wanted to play sports, and that was it. Went to boarding school. I was like, I'm going to make a conscious effort to do good in school. I know I can do this. This shit's easy. It's boring. I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. But there was so much work going on. Like my first day in boarding school, they're like, all right, we're in class. All right. So uh, you got this French homework and you got this and you got that. I was in the library for like four hours. I was like, I am Gucci on this. I'm cool. So I stuck it out till Christmas, packed up all my stuff, had it shipped home and showed up at home and was like, well, mom, I'm done with that place. It's too much. I'm ninth grader. It's just 10th tenth, tenth grade. 
Mm-hmm. It's too much. Like I'm not old enough to have that level of responsibility and no fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm having no fun and this is some bull stuff. How many black people were at your boarding school? So little that I almost think I might have been the only one. Okay. Maybe a couple, maybe not. But I'd grown up like that, so it wasn't anything different. Yeah, that you know, used to be the only one. Fuck it. I don't care. Excuse my language. It's all good. So I went home. I said, so here's the deal, Mom. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to go to school for the rest of the year. I'm going to move to Vermont. I'm going to teach skiing to make money so that I can snowboard. Okay. She was like. So you were as good in skiing that you could instruct others. Oh, yeah. Athlete. Shit out quick. Especially at that age, it's easy when you're a young kid to learn. Like my water. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine started this. He's like, he doesn't drink. He's like, I'm just tired of being in bars and having everybody always asking me. Mm-hmm. We started a water company that looks like some sort it's of like liquid beer. standard. Okay. Called Liquid Death? Liquid Death. He's a white dude. He likes heavy metal music, so he calls his water Liquid Death. And it's just water. Okay. Interesting. Murder Your Thirst. From the Austrian Alps. Yeah, it's bubble water. It's good. I mean, all bubble water is pretty much the same now, right? Yeah, pretty much. So I taught skiing. So you make money to snowboard? Yeah. Okay. I made friends up there. At this point, I was already involved with the culture at Stratton Mountain, which is like Burton's home of snowboarding. It's where Burton's snowboards kind of started. That was the home mountain. Jake Burton? Jake, yeah. It's just kind of started there. So he started modern snowboarding, you said? It was him, Tom Sims. It was something that seemed to start in a lot of different areas of the country at once. Okay. Well, I don't know if Jake started it. He was my go-to because I was in Vermont. But if I'd have been in California, it would have been Tom Sims. If I would have been in Utah, it would have been the guy who had winter stick. Okay. Snowboards. So it all depends on where you were. Okay. And I got on, they had like a training team, like a team. Stratton had a, called Stratton Mountain Allegro. Then and they were the boarding team. Yeah. Okay. We had a coach because we had to do the racing. Back then you had to compete. So you had to do the giant slalom, the slalom, and the half pipe. And wasn't really into the racing, you know. I did well at it. It just, it seemed too much like an organized sport to me. You don't like, like organized sport. Organized sport. I'm going to go back and play hockey because that's where I'm going to get the paycheck. I'm not okay. going to do some organized sport over here. For okay. okay. You know what I'm so you want the extreme. I just want to be able to express myself. Okay. Imagine if all these young kids, like it happened in basketball for a little bit with the and one movement and the street ball. Mm-hmm. They would be able to be way more creative and expressive. Not that they can't in the NBA. Because they can, but the streetball thing, you know, it was just a little more. So my team was really good. We had Ross Powers, who was one of the gold medalists in the Olympics. He ended okay. up being. What year? And Do you know? Remember? I can Google it. Okay. I don't know what year, but he won a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Might have been the second one. I know Gian Seaman, Siam won the first one. So he might have won the second one. Okay. Maybe. I'm not sure. And then Trisha Burns, who was a big pro, and Doug Burns, rest in peace, who was her brother, who was my best friend there. So you met them? At the mountain. 
Was was it before you moved down there, or was it? When yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I'd met him before. I was just going up on like weekends and mm-hmm. stuff like that whenever I could on the year before. So I did that. I made the nationals. Okay. That year, the first year they ever had the nationals in snowboarding, and I did well. I ended up like fifth in racing and seventh or eighth in half pipe, and I crashed or something. So I did really well. And then I got sponsors. Well, how the sponsors, did they pay you or just give you a No, I was an amateur. They just gave me free boards back then. Okay. Which was cool. I mean, I got hockey gear for free at one point. But mm-hmm. after you got your initial sponsors, what happened after that? Like, how did you blow up? I uh, ended up going the next fall to a school called the Beekman School in New York City, which was a professional children's school. Professional children's school. Yeah. So like actors and people like me and stuff like that. And just other kids who just wanted a a less stressful academic environment, I suppose. It was a great education. And I met some really cool people. But I'd like go to school for a couple days and then take off for two weeks. Where did you go? Vermont or wherever I needed to go for contests and stuff like that. So started snowballing. And I believe it was that spring, I went to the Nationals, and I was kind of punk rock and, like, a little bit of a, not a bad kid, but I definitely told you what I thought of stuff. So where was Nationals? Is it all over, or was it? So the first one was in Southern California, the second one was in Oregon, and the third one was in Vermont. Okay. But at the second one in Oregon, it was young organization, and I'm not going to say anything, but the half pipe wasn't the best and all that. I went and spoke to them about it. And they ended up making the finals, and then they ended up not scoring me. They didn't DQ me or anything. Me and, a, and it wasn't a Why didn't they score you? It wasn't a black thing because my two white homies, they didn't score them either. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't like what we had to say about the half putt. I don't understand how they can not score you because they didn't like what you say. I mean, I don't understand how people can run into the Capitol and oh, not yeah. get shot. Yeah. You can do whatever you want if you're the boss. I got you. And that's it. And so I was like, bet. Okay, I see you. So you competed and they just didn't give you a score off. Didn't get scored. They took your money and they didn't give you a score off. Yeah, that's fine. So I called my mom and I had been going to Whistler every summer. Now it was like three years. All summer. We'd go and we'd live in Whistler and train and snowboard and party and have fun. Cool. And this is when Whistler... Was only I love uh, yeah. yeah. So you've been there. So yeah. you know where like Cheetahs is and like the main village right there. Mm-hmm. That was all that was the town back then. Mm-hmm. Like all this other stuff wasn't there. It was just that, okay. and like everything else was just woods and bears. It was fantastic. So there was a pro contest, which was the biggest pro contest in Canada, the next week up there. So I called my mom and I was like, "Hey, mom, they screwed me." I'm just going to turn pro. Can I please just go up to Whistler and just do this contest? She was like, yeah. So I can't remember. I either got a ride up there or jumped on a bus. I can't remember how I got. I might have flown knowing my highfalutin ass back then. God, I love my parents. They spent so much money on me. Unnecessary money. But I'm getting it back tenfold. Anyways, so I went up to Whistler, did the contest. And one of the most monumental snowboard movies that came out previous fall by this guy named Mike McIntyre. I watch that movie every day. So my Canadian friends call me in my hotel and said, hey, 
Mike McIntyre's here with a couple pros, and they need a place to stay. Can I stay in your room? I was like, yes. So I let these dudes stay in my room. You know, I was there for like a week. And then like halfway through, they're like, hey, we heard you did pretty good in the contest, man. You should come film with us. And I was like, yep. This was the snowboarding that I wanted to do. So I got, I was really lucky. So you like this better than the half pipe? Oh, way better. I don't like okay. competing because they can do yeah. that to you. Because they cannot score you. They can do the same thing filming, too. Oh, really? Okay. You don't directly get a check from film. From racing. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Maybe your part's not as good, whatever, you still get a check. When you race, did you race, like, slalom and GS on the board? Oh, yeah. On the board. All of it. Hard boots, shin guards, face thing. But you like half pipe better out of the three. I know you racing, you prefer to filming. Yeah. So you stopped racing all together oh, and yeah. you did filming? I think I left all my race stuff in the garbage can at Mount Hood after that contest. Really? Four okay. Boots, all of it. I was like, I'm done. If you want this stuff, man, you can have all this. No, somebody's got it. It's not for me. So I ended up filming with these guys and I did good enough that they invited me to travel with them from Whistler in the car all the way back to Colorado. Whistler, Washington, Utah, Colorado. And mind you, I don't think I'm 18 yet. Okay. So was this when you were with Ride? or This this was before before Ride. Okay, okay. This was, I was still on Mistral. So this was even before Burton. Okay. And it's funny because now these kids, you can look at the footage that you got. Back then, it was like high eight camera. It's all closed and sealed. You, you don't know. Yeah. And so I got home after like a month. I'd hurt myself because I was going so hard. I was like, this is my shot. I got to, when you know, this is your shot. This could be the only shot you're going to get. And it's with the biggest filmer and the biggest dudes in the industry that you watched all winter are there. You got to go, you know. Okay. And so I did my thing. You can only cash so many chips in before you broke. Mm-hmm. Okay. I cashed them all in and I hurt my uh, collarbone. Thank goodness it was in the end of the trip. You broke it? Dislocated something. Okay. And went home, went to the doctor, got all fixed up, laid in bed for six weeks. This was like April. So I laid in bed for about six weeks watching Young and the Restless and going to school one day a week mm-hmm. and got better. Went back out to Whistler for the summer, snowboarded all summer, came home, and I didn't know if I was in the movie. I had no idea mm-hmm. because you don't know. What's the name of the movie? It's called Pocahontas. P-O-K. Pocahontas. See, I tried to find that in the Disney stuff. I never, I couldn't find yeah, yeah, your okay. Pocahontas. Yeah. P-O-K. Okay. Yeah. And I remember being at my shop sponsor watch the first time, and back then it wasn't like, Russell Winfield part, you know, Teddy A. Hawkinson part, so-and-so part. It was like spots. So it was like Whistler. You know, they're going through all these spots and all these spots. And I finally got to the Whistler spot, and I was like, oh, God, oh, God. And boom, there I was. I fucking made it. I'm here. I've arrived. You know? First mm-hmm. Blackbird, I'm here. I broke mm-hmm. down the barriers. I made it. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. So all that winter... I uh, traveled around with Jeff Brushy, who's a Vermont guy, who's the current world champion. Okay. And did half-pipe contests. And spring came around, and I was back at Stratton for the U.S. Open. 
which is where it used to be. And the Burton team manager comes up to me and goes, hey, man, I want to put you on the world team and bring you to the world team photo shoot for all the product and all the assets we're going to use next year. And I was like, yep. So okay. I did all that. So that's what Burton was your sponsor. That's thing. when I was writing for Burton. Yeah, from that minute on, I was on Burton. It lasted okay. about March to September. And they actually paid you? No, I, I was still negotiating Okay. and dealing with all that. They sent me a contract, and my team manager, I mean, they sent me, Ms. Brown, I'm talking boxes. Like, I got the whole Burton catalog sitting at my house. My mom's like, what? I'm like, yeah, look at this, mom. Like, when Burton wants to show you who they are, I bet it's like when they're Nike's court and, like, the next big thing in basketball. They just send you the whole catalog. Okay. boxes so my team manager i see him at the trade show and i had heard a rumor that he was leaving burton and starting his own company and i was like well if he leaves burton i don't know if the next dude is gonna think about me what he thinks about me so i'm following this dude so i already know okay. what he thinks and he's down so i talked to him i said man what's going on he said yeah i'm starting a new company i didn't even give him a chance i was like well i'm going with you mm-hmm. and he was like Okay. And that was ride snowboards. So, so no, right. Okay. So you went from Minstrel to Burton to ride, basically. Yep. And so did ride actually pay you? Still had to negotiate stuff. No, ride paid me. How long were you at ride? Three years, four years. And when did you do Toy Soldiers? That was with ride. Toy Soldiers. Yeah. So how did you like market yourself back then? Today, I mean, people are on YouTube videos and. Now, this was probably. The owner, Tim, who was my team manager, Tim Pogue, this was probably the most genius thing he did with Ride. He put together a tour called the Ride with the People Tour. So he bought us a crappy-ass Ford panel van, like an 86 Ford van, black, and they put big stereo system in there, put a bed in the back, you know, and it was put the box on the top, and it gave us a gas card and said, go. So we just traveled around the country. He'd be like, hey, you guys got to be here. And we had sky pages. So we were mm-hmm. oh, yeah. little gold yeah. chains. Yeah. <laughs> and we would just travel around. Like, hey, you guys got to be here in a week. All right. So you travel all around the country and Canada too? Uh, yeah. Did you go anywhere else? Oh, yeah. Outside of Canada and the United States? Been to France, Norway, Switzerland, Germany, Austria, New Zealand, China, Japan, Korea, all over. We just did that worldwide. And it created such a buzz. Everybody on the ride team had personality. Everybody mm-hmm. was going to connect with somebody on the team. Okay. How many people were on your team? Six. What was your favorite place when you were traveling all over the world to board? My favorite place to board is in Washington. That's why I live here. Washington? Okay. Why? I like the snow. I like the proximity to the city. I love being in the mountains, but I feel like I need to be able to disappear into a city. When you live in the mountains, I grew up in a small town as a kid. Even though it was a suburb, I'm cool. I don't need everybody knowing my business. I don't want to know your motherfucking business. Yeah, I understand that. So how long were you at Ride? Four years, three, four years. And then that blew up because of me and them. We were young. I was partying a bunch. I didn't feel like I was appreciated. How old were you then, around? 24, 25, somewhere in there. And I wasn't getting paid what everybody else was getting paid. 
You think it was race related? I don't know what it was. All I know is I made enough mistakes that allowed them to do that. I'm not put saying anything is racial unless you call me the word and mm-hmm. I know it for sure because that's some heavy shit to lay on somebody. And if I'm not 100, I'm not going to say it is because yeah. I'm just not that kind of human. Gotcha. I'll say I was partying and doing my thing and whether or not it was racially charged, I gave them enough ammunition to feel good about not paying me. You know what I'm saying? If I would have done everything right, mm-hmm. they would have had to. And that's part of being black. Mm-hmm. We got to do shit way better. Yep, all the time. And it's good and it's bad. It makes us be better. But it's a bummer when you watch someone who's not as good getting twice as much. It's just And that's just, that's not me. That's just in general. That's a blanket statement. So when you were partying, this is when you were right. What, you were just living life or what made you get into like heavy party? I grew up in New York City in the 80s. I was always partying. Mm -hmm. It was what it was. So that being said. So what did you do after you left? I snowboarded still for a bit. And then I got into snowboarding because it was creative and it was about culture and in the mid late nineties, it went from punk rock to energy drinks. Okay. And with the corporate money comes the corporate corporate. And I I tapped out, yeah. I was like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. And I just went and lived my life in the city. What did you do? I had a golf company for a bit that was never uh-huh. really got off the ground, was the head designer for. Then I worked at a golf course. After all that, home and commercial mortgages for about okay. 12 years. I worked for a real estate developer, started digging holes, ended up being a project manager, and then got to... Were you staying yeah. in Washington then? Yeah, the, the whole time. Then? Okay. And then okay. about five years ago, I got into the car sales industry. Okay. So as you watch snowboard and you say go from punk rock to energy drink, how did that evolve? Or it just was a corporate Everything change or just where the money was, where the kids? What was okay to do or be started changing and started being more like a normal sport. And when I was 16, I left the normal sport because of mm-hmm. that. It just wasn't core anymore. But my older daughter, when she was younger, speaking of which, give me a second. She's texting me, Dad went to dinner. <laughs> She wanted to snowboard. She wanted to try uh-huh. it. So I called Ride Snowboards, who had had a full rehaul. And there's like one or two people still there from the original crew. And I was like, hey, can I get a setup or a pro form or something for me and my kid? And they're like, oh, absolutely. And it was five years. Like I hadn't snowboarded, touched a snowboard, looked towards, I didn't even look east from Seattle towards the mountain for five years. I was done. And brought her up there, and it kind of rekindled it for me. I started looking at it from a different angle. I oh, after your daughter got into it? Well, yeah, after the five-year layoff. So you took a hiatus and did other stuff, but were you boarding at all? Or you just no, told, I didn't not at all. look towards the mountain. Wow, okay. If somebody sent me a free snowboard, I sold it. Wow. Like, hey, man, I'm going to send you a board. Cool. I got a board for sale. Hmm. I was over it. I got back into it, and... I so your daughter it. got you back into it. Pretty much. And yeah, she's, she's a huge dancer. So she's not really even into it. She was kind of like, eh, 
infinite. You know, my little one, Sophia, loves it. Nikita's always kind of been like, eh. Okay. Yeah. She likes golf, though. We don't get to play much, but Nikita, she's a doctor for real. She likes to golf, but whatever. I like playing golf, so that's something that me and her, if she ever wants to hang out with me again, can do. But she's 20, so. So tell me about your mother. You said your mother and your father did a lot, to, I guess. My father left early. Okay. My stepdad did a lot. I was good at hockey. Good. The sky was the limit for me at 16, and I quit. And I'm not going to say they were real happy about it. Okay. They'd invested a lot of time and money into this, but my mom always had my back. Okay. As long as I was doing something. She was your biggest advocate? Yeah. Just do something. Don't sit around. Don't be just in the club, running around New York City. Do something. So she supported you in all your boarding endeavors and everything. Tell me about it. I read about the time your mother passed away. We had that in common. My mom passed away in 2008 from breast cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. It was August 17th, 1996. Mm I was 25, I believe. 24, 25. And I was living in Vancouver, uh, BC. And I got a phone call. Your mom died. And I couldn't. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Nope. Sorry. I'm just not going to deal with it. It was a week. And everybody mm-hmm. knew, but I just, I couldn't. That's my only blood relative that I really know. Like, mm-hmm. that's all I got on this planet in the end. That's it. And it threw me into a loop. I started partying way more. Mm-hmm. You know, with your mom, you can always pick up the phone and be like, Mom. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Any, anytime. Yeah. And, and she might not save your ass. But you know she's there. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Chances are she's going to save you, but she might not. There's been a few times where she's been like, fuck you. And I've been like, back. You know? <laughs> but at least I know I can call back if I got to cry, if I just whatever. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. She got you. Yeah, and she wasn't. And there was nobody else I can do to do that. And her birthday is on the 23rd of August, and mine's on the 25th. Okay. So it was. Wow. It was brutal. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it took me about 10 years to get over it. I mean, 10 years? Okay. So how did just, you get over it? You just get over it. I don't know how. It just, it finally kind of melted like, away a little bit. After my mother passed away, I was depressed. I had to get counseling. Actually, this is how I kind of started running, and running kind of helped lift my mood. And that's why I wrote a book, and my podcast is a spinoff of of it because running mm-hmm. was kind of therapeutic. So it's like running and sports and things are sometimes an outlet. It's not just about what it can do for your body yeah. or what it does for your mind. I went back to a car lot that I was working at four months ago. I got sold a bill of goods by this place that I used to work at that was false. Oh, we got this going on. We got that going mm-hmm. on. I was paid half. It was just half of what and so I ended up going back to my mm-hmm. old spot, and one dude quit my first day there. And we run a lean ship, which is good. That way everybody can make more money. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason I go to work. I don't go to work to hang out. Mm-hmm. I'm not that guy. I got a couch. I got a lake right yeah. there. I can go to the mountain. I can go to the golf course. I got things to do. 
And mm-hmm. so one dude quit, so there was only three of us now. There's got to be two people there at all times. So I ended up working 12 days straight. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I get anxious. Mm-hmm. I'll implode eventually. So today, mm-hmm. mountain was closed. I went and hit some golf ball. I was talking mm-hmm. to a friend, and she was like, you sound, like, anxious. And I was short. You know, I, was, mm-hmm. I, was, I just didn't want to hear it from anybody, and I didn't want to be questioned about anything. And let me alone. I went and hit golf balls with some friends for an hour and a half, two hours. And it was all gone. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. need, I just needed exercise. You need, yeah, it does something. It, it does something. And it, it could be a crappy workout, but it's still, like, something. No. Yeah. <laughs> so I am a believer of your theory, or however it is. Okay. When you were boarding, do you have any major injuries? No, because there's people out there that will do stuff. I mean, I was lucky, first of all, very lucky. Oh. My ankle, mm-hmm. my back, but that's mm-hmm. just from constant use for years and years. But never, no surgery, no broken bones. Oh, you said you yeah. collarbone. Yeah, collarbone when I was first starting. But when you get to a certain level, I mean, you can always fuck yourself up. But I find that you have to assess shit okay i'm not gonna jump off that 60 foot cliff because the landing's flat or there ain't enough snow or i'm mm-hmm. gonna hit that jump over there because it don't look like there's enough speed and i'm gonna land in the flat and second of all y'all ain't paying me enough <laughs> so i was lucky in that i watched yeah the end of my- i listened to your podcast and I think one the person you interviewed when I was listening to, he had a significant spinal cord injury. Trevor, mm-hmm. I was just going to talk about that. I was there yeah. for that. I watched that. And he was one of the three black snowboarders at that time. And I watched him go off that jump, off into the abyss, and land 120 feet down in the flat. Mm-hmm. And that was the first stop of that tour that year. I couldn't get it together for the rest of the year. Like, I just, mm-hmm. like, my brain... Because when you're standing on top of those jumps, the two things you think of, don't be short and don't be long. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, that was in my brain for the whole season. Everybody's like, what are you doing? I was like, bro, I, I had too much ego to tell him, bro, I'm fucked off from watching dude become paralyzed. But that's mm-hmm. the truth of the matter. I just couldn't pull it together the year. And that was kind of it. It's kind of the end of it for me. I was like, I'm good. Thinking back on it, I was pretty much the last year where I was like, yeah, I don't really, I'm cool. Mm. But it took you a whole year to get over seeing it? Yeah, and then at the end of the year, I just quit. Now, four grand a month, I'm not really having fun. I'm cool. I'm just going to go get a normal job because. That was after that you see Trevor. And I went to apparel. So I did the golf company. I went to apparel design school, which I had started in New York. But then Mistral turned me pro. I started at School of Visual Arts for a semester. And then Mistral was, hey, we want to turn you pro. And I was like, hey, let's go. Because that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I went back to finish in Seattle after I did that golf brand. I was like, I might as well just finish this degree. Didn't finish it. I was two quarters out and you have to do an internship. And the lady who I did my internship was I showed her all my stuff and she was wow, why are you still in school? Why aren't you working for somebody? And then at the same time, I was working at the mortgage place part-time and like trying to live that artist life and watching these people make all this money 
I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to go work here full time and then I can do my art thing. I'll fund it from this money, which never happened, of course. Mm -hmm. Not to back up, but that's, I forgot a pretty important thing. So, yeah, that was that. When you were growing up, who were your role models? Would you say, did you have any? I didn't really have role models. Say your mom? Yes, absolutely. My mother. But there wasn't really a father figure in my life that I aspired to be. Obviously, there was Michael Jordan, and he's going to sound crazy, but I remember watching as a really young kid, and it wasn't any of them were my role models, but the U.S. hockey team winning the Olympics in 1980, Lake Placid, and that, just the underdog and the, the determination and the drive and all of that was huge for me. I remember, and that's kind of when I decided I'm going to play hockey. I'd played before, but that's when I made the final answer, professional hockey. That was it. Do you still watch hockey? No. I'm one of those guys who doesn't. I watch football because I'm going to play no football. You watch it? I watch it. You see hockey fan? Yes, ma'am. But I was a Giants fan growing up. But I had to adopt one of the teams here. You don't have to. You didn't have to. Yeah, you do. You have to be part of your community. But you don't have to cheer for, I live in Chicago. I don't cheer for the Bears. You don't necessarily have to. Oh. You're not from there. You can do what you want. Okay? Yeah, I've, I've spent more time here at this point in my life than New York. You can write your own rules. Cause, you know, and that's part of my rules. Okay. I'm All a right. Yankees fan. I'm a Rangers fan. Okay. <laughs> but I'm a Seahawks fan. Okay. I like the dynamic of that team. I do. I like Russell Wilson. Yeah, I like Russell. I like the way Pete makes his moves and gets the underdog. And that turns into be a superstar. It's a good program. Yeah, I wish they would have beat the Rams. But yeah, we got to think about it. I don't know what it is, but whatever. There's always yeah, there. that's what it is. Any given Sunday. Yeah, and we didn't have a 12th man. That's true. If those stands would have been full, lights out. You know one. Tell me about your Fat Albert board Lord. that was released in what 1995? Something like that. Cult classic. Yeah. The character's name is Russell, and that's Russell, why I okay. did it. Okay. They asked me, what do you want for your graphic? And we were already kind of rifting it with me and Ryan a little bit. I kind of know what I want and I know what I like and I know what's going to do good for me. And mm-hmm. I know how to market what I like and what's going to do good. Like I have. And they weren't really trying to hear you. They were like, not really. And so I went to Blockbuster Video and rented the Fat Albert video. And I said, I want this character right here. And he was this, just like the graphic. And I was just like that. And what else? I was nothing. Put a line on mm-hmm. the top of it and a line on the bottom of it and put my name under it and a baby blue top sheet. And that's it. And so it ended up everybody kind of, when you spend all day, every day with a group of people, your ideas start to get, everybody starts to come up with kind of the same stuff a little bit. Mm-hmm. You wanted yours to be... So unique. Yeah. Then we had that. And then the rest of the line kind of fell in place around that. And I think it was one of the best lines of snowboards ever we produced graphic wise. Mm -hmm. But was there like kind of friction in. I had heard that the Cosby organization sent a cease and assist. Okay. So it was just like one year. Yeah. That it was out. Yeah. It was actually half a year. Two graphics a year. We were selling so many. Back in the good old days. 
So snowboarding when you were at your the height of the versus now, like what is the difference as far as the compensation? Or do snowboarders now make much money, professional snowboarders? Most of them don't. A few of them make a lot. Back then, there was more money in it. I didn't really get any of that, but there was more money in it. Is it the money from the sponsors? Sponsors. Yeah. Sponsors. Yep. Board companies, mostly. Board and apparel and boots, goggles. Okay. And you are part of a web series. Was that with Ride? Web series. What web series are we talking about? I tried to do one. Um, and it oh, was okay. successful, but my finance guys were a little different, let's say. They funded mm-hmm. it, but had me answer for all the money, and I had to eventually pay it back, but I had no keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for all this money, but I can't actually use it without talking to you, so I need a P&L every 30 days. I need to see what's being spent and earned out of this account every 30 days. If mm-hmm. I don't have, if I'm being held responsible for it, and I didn't like that. So okay, so like three months. Okay. But tell me about your podcast and your blog. It's just a podcast. And all it is, here's the thing. Back in the day, elders would pass on knowledge to the younger people within the community or tribe or clan or whatever wherever you were from, whatever it was, so that these younger generations wouldn't have to go through the same stuff so they could evolve as a group. That's gone away. Now everybody's on Instagram or TV, and a lot of the younger generation doesn't even respect the older generation. They just think they're old and they don't know anything. That's true. So what my podcast is doing, hopefully, what my intention is to just share stories. and hopefully. Somebody will get something out of it and learn something. No, maybe not. Maybe they'll just get a laugh, and that's fine, too. But I think if we sneak it in on them, they'll learn something and hopefully use it, and they won't have to make the same mistakes that I did or somebody else did or whatever. Okay. Do you do any, I guess, advocacy work, or I guess your blog is kind of getting more people into snowboarders, especially, like, people of color? I'm working now with a group out of New York out of Brooklyn, called Hoods to Woods. I'm working with them, and that's their primary intention. Oh, Hoods to what? Hoods to Woods. Omar and Brian, they're solid dudes, and that's the one that I most identify with. One, because it's hometown stuff, and two, because I know both of their stories. And they're, okay. they're real snowboarders. They're real black snowboarders. So that's where I'm at. I've worked with some other stuff. I've donated to some of the ones here in the Northwest, Snow Days down in Portland. Okay. But oddly enough, none of those organizations reach out to me. They don't. Hoods to Woods has, but, and Snow Days Hoods does, because one of my best friends was on the board, but none of them reach out to me, which I find weird. I'd reach out to me. I got you. I have a, a friend, her son is, is wants to be a professional boarder. I gave you his name. you well, mind if he reaches out and talks to you? Sure, I'm the truth. All right. But I think it'd be cool. He's a nice kid. He looks nice on video from my eyes, yep. but I don't know much about border. I've only skied. Yep. So part of my podcast is to interview people who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. And I know you overcame a lot of obstacles to make it as a professional black snowboarder. Mm-hmm. 
what advice would you give listeners who like are interested in doing something dynamic, something out the box or any goal or aspiration? Because anything in life, you're going to have some kind of obstacles. You're going to have difficulties, but you have to keep on to make it to the end. What advice or pearls of wisdom will you give my listeners? Remember why you started it for one. Okay. Know you're going to fall down. True. And know this. It's not what you did when you fell down or to fall down. It's what you do immediately after upon getting up that defines you. Mm-hmm. In the mortal words of Chuck D, don't believe the hype. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, know who you are. Know who you is. That's it. That's true. Where can my listeners find you? Your blog, your podcast, they want to check out some of your videos. You can find me on Instagram at Mr. Winfield, M-I-S-T-E-R, Winfield, W-I-N-F-I-L-D. Or you can just Google me. I hate to say that. Google me. You can Google me. I'm pretty accessible. I'm actually starting to get very, very busy. What's good? Is it busy? Yeah, good busy. I got a 20-year-old daughter in college who's trying to be a doctor. Good for her. What kind of doctor does she want to be? Pediatric oncology. Yeah. Okay. So, well, kudos to her. Yeah, thank you. Real. Where is she in school? Chapman University in Orange, California. Okay. For undergrad, she wants to go okay. back. East. She wants to go to University of Pennsylvania. Did my fellowship in Pennsylvania Hospital. Oh, nice. Okay. And I worked in Philly for what seven years. Okay. She got into every single school that she wanted to, besides Stanford. Okay. Well, kudos to her. I look out for. Her. Hopefully, I won't ever need an oncologist, but... God, I hope. Especially, well, you passed... Well, pediatric pediatric oncologist, so so I can't reverse back to being a kid anyway. <laughs> you could. You got the secret sauce. <laughs> if you can do that, you got enough money to beat cancer seven gazillion times. You want yeah. to just base those level then. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate thank it. You. up this episode of running is cheaper than therapy podcast thank you for tuning in please if you already haven't download running is cheaper than therapy podcast on itunes spotify or however you listen to your favorite podcasts if you have any questions comments or possible show topics please email running is cheaper than therapy olb Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is running is cheaper than therapy. O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We O U I Life L I V E. We O U I Love L O V E. Again, we, O-U-I, life, L-I-V-E, we, O-U-I, love. Thank you, and please tune in again.